questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight, I'm thrilled to introduce a fearless journalist and an expert in pandemic propaganda. From AIDS to COVID-19. In 1984, when the Secretary of Health and Human Services declared that HIV was the probable cause of AIDS, Celia Farber was the only reporter who dared to question the official narrative and examine the science behind the disease. Her groundbreaking reporting on the deadliness of AZT and Dr. Fauci's trials on children, infants, and pregnant mothers was largely ignored and led to her being maligned and canceled. Today, 40 years later, after her original reporting, Farber's book, Series of Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS, is more relevant than ever and serves as an essential foundation for understanding the catastrophic sequel, COVID-19. Her work exposes the fear-mongering, cancel culture, and woke takeover of science, medicine, and journalism, which we will see all around us today. Celia Farber is a native New Yorker who grew up in Sweden and returned to the United States to attend college. She's best known for her writings against pandemic propaganda, but she was also an early critic of the emerging thought forms that would become quote-unquote woke. Farber has written for Harper's, Esquire, Rolling Stone, Salon, The New York Press, and The New York Post, among many other publications. She wrote and edited Spin Magazine's AIDS column, Words from the Front, from 1987 to 97. Her Esquire cover story of O.J. Simpson broke sales records for the magazine in 1998 once translated and syndicated to over 25 countries. She now divides her time between Spain and New York City. We are fortunate to have Celia Farber on Veritas today to share her insights on the current pandemic, censorship, and the state of journalism. You won't want to miss a single word of this interview if you want to uncover the truth about AIDS, its sequel, COVID-19, and the tactics employed to manipulate the masses, stay tuned and don't go anywhere. Welcome to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To access tonight's full interview and all of our exclusive material, simply join the Veritas Plus family by clicking on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Veritas store for a range of great products, including focused life force energy. Experience the power of FLFE with a 15-day free trial today. No credit card required. We're excited to announce the launch of our brand new Veritas Plus Insider, your source for exclusive news and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you're looking to get in touch with Mel, have a guest suggestion, or would like to provide feedback, simply click on the contact button on our website. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's show. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselrich. And directly from somewhere in the United States, I'd like to welcome Celia Farber. Hello, Celia, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. Very nice to be with you. I'm, I'm uh, like all of us, shocked, stunned, overwhelmed by the world. But, um, but things are coming clear. Many things are clarifying, I feel. I have to ask you from the beginning, and I mentioned this to you offline, but I have to say right at the beginning, I just finished the book this morning, and it's almost as if I could remove the word H, and I know they're totally different scenarios, I know that, but mm-hmm. I could remove the word H, and it's almost as if it's repeating, literally a sequel. But let's begin in chronological order. How did you become interested in reporting on H and COVID-19 too? Uh, it, it actually started with an emo- emotional state that was the the implanted propagandized state, which was fear. I was I had come to New York back to New York City after I was born in New York City, but then had my most of my childhood and in, in Sweden from well, actually from the age of 11 to 18, then returned to the States with fever dreams of investigative journalism wanted to become a journalist. And um, the AIDS propaganda scare had had actually been underway for a couple of years. And like everybody else, I simply believed that I was going to die from this, <laughs> this thing. And so I think to the extent I had an, ex- an obsession early on, and I did obsessive interest 
it was born of that anxiety and fear, but it quickly turned into obsessive interest in what might be wrong with the official theory, which turned into tracking on the one hand scientists who spoke and sounded like scientists who were saying the whole orthodox, everything they were saying was unfounded, destructive lies versus the orthodox side and try, trying to reconcile these two polar opposite sets of voices. Going back to 1984, the then U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Margaret Heckler, she declared that the probable cause of AIDS have been found. And let's begin with Dr. Robert Gallo. Who was he and what part did he play in the HIV-AIDS hypothesis? Yeah, so Gal- Gallo was known as a very ambitious, I'm going to try to be as generous as I can, okay? Because there are there are some who would just tear him tear him apart, but I don't like to do that. So I want to just give him his just due as best I can. Uh, he was he was he was known to be let's just say kind of more ambitious than <laughs> um, than scholarly. So he was this guy who was you know very much possessed by Nobel dreams wanted to, you know, quixotic, like save the world, save. He, he had had a, um, a sibling who had died of leukemia. So he had a family before, before the famous, fam- famously named HIV. He had a family of leukemia viruses that he was seeking to attach to. So he was like the guy with a bag of viruses looking to attach them to a very important disease. And he hadn't succeeded and uh, this time he succeeded. So the word on the scientific street when Gallo did his press conference, the scientists I later came to know so well, this particular story came from Harvey Bialy, Dr. Harvey Bialy. He's no longer with us. He was this he was he was the uh, founding editor of Biotechnology magazine. And he became Peter Duisberg's, we'll get to him soon, I imagine, um, scientific biographer. Yes. But Harvey Bialy told me that, speaking for himself, when he heard there was going to be a Robert Gallo press conference announcing a retrovirus to be the cause of AIDS, you know, they were just laughing. No, nobody, they didn't go. They, and, and he said to himself, oh, another Bob Gallo vir- virus, that'll never fly. Famous last words. So he was viewed as um, promiscuously attaching, attempting to attach his so-called, I have to say, viruses to illnesses and being very ambitious and being very loose and fast. But I I don't think he was seen as being the the dark figure that he kind of became. Does that make sense? I mean, he and Peter Duisburg were friends. They played tennis together. We'll talk about Peter Duisberg in a moment, but was Robert Gallo kind of the equivalent of Fauci today, or am I wrong in saying that? Well, they're very different archetypes. And um, we, the the dissidents, and in what you read, by the way, and thank you for the introduction, what you you said, rather, I want to say right off the bat that there were so many of us, and I, I, I... I was not the only one, but I was maybe the most persistent one. And I was one of the very first. So, um, you know, I thank you for that. I'm not correcting you, but I just want to expand the lens so that there are just so many players in this thing. So I want to try to stay focused on what's important. But you just asked me, was Bob, was he like a Tony Fauci? Okay, so you know how the Godfather is uh, masterfully silent Machiavellian, right? The actual Godfather of the movie and the book. Right. So so that's that's Fauci. Gallo was a loud mouth. I mean, he called me. There was one day I came back to the office at Spin and we had run our first series. It was back to back Q&A with Peter Duisberg. We're talking eight, 1988 now, early 1988. Q&A with Peter Duisberg followed by a captured Q&A with um, Robert Gallo by 
another journalist named Anthony Liversidge, he called him up and said, what do you think about this Duisburg fellow? And he just recorded Gallo's lengthy and frankly hilarious tirade. And so he would go on these tirades and they, they were funny. They were colorful. They were, they were crazy. He would, he was very expressive Italian um, dominating um, and you might say, yeah, manipulative and so forth, but he was not this, um, silent shark archetype. So those two are very different. At the time, we were very focused on Gallo. And now the world is, for understandable reasons, much more focused on Fauci. I never really wrote much about Fauci. We all wrote a lot about Gallo. When I say we, I mean this international community. We called ourselves the AIDS dissidents. The, our enemies called us the AIDS denialists. So does that does that answer your question at all? What it I does. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for putting things in perspective. Sure. And Peter Duisberg, who's a, a very important figure in in this whole age, what did Peter Duisberg? What did he question in the eighties? And I mean, by the way, I remember as if it was today, uh, starting at the university in in August of nineteen eighty five, and all you saw were pictures of Rock Hudson and AIDS and in Africa. And the fear, every it was a different thing than what we see today with, with the sequel COVID nineteen. But I still remember that. So, but what did Peter? Who was Peter Duisberg, and and what did he question? Yeah. So, I, I another another archetype you might say Peter was more of a Peter was was br a brilliant, highly decorated. You might kind of say a gold, golden boy archetype who came over from a German. Um, cancer virologist who came over from, and that's a really complicated term. We'll unpack all these terms as we go, but, but he came over from Germany from the Max Planck Institute was, was, I guess the, I guess the right word would be handpicked at a very young age to come in to, to come to the United States and was highly, um, Funded at the highest level, there's there's a hierarchy to government science funding, and he was at the very top. He was at the top of everything. He was the young one of the youngest members ever voted into the National Academy of Sciences. Sometime, I believe he must have still been in his twenties. He was, I guess you could say, on, on the potential road to a Nobel Prize for a chapter known as the Oncogene Chapter, and he as I say in chapter one, or as I, as I wrote in chapter one, which is called the passion of Peter Duisburg. And I think that might be my favorite chapter. Uh, he was known before he did what he did with HIV and AIDS, namely contest it to say the least he did. He had been doing that consistently because he's this sort of German. I don't know how much German has to do with it, but a thoroughbred scientist maybe I should say European thoroughbred scientist who comes in and doesn't think the game the way an American scientist like a Gallo or a Fauci. So the way I always see things dramatically as a writer, you know, like it, it's a big human drama, right? It's a big tragic human drama, the whole thing. So I was always looking at the characters. So Peter's character was, um, I'm going to say pure, pure, very well-trained and destined for greatness scientist who comes to America, land of the free, and discovers fascism in American science in the most shocking way. As he, is, he, he reaches all the top pinnacles and is then sort of clubbed nearly to death in terms of career reputation and funding by Anthony Fauci's AIDS apparatus for coming out in 1987 in a paper that was an is, was and is an outstanding paper that should have ended it then. It was a 1987 paper in which he addressed whether, whether uh, retroviruses were causes of cancer and whether retroviruses were causes of AIDS. No to both. So, so it was a, you know, a lamentation, a deconstruction. We're on the wrong, we're on the wrong roads here, kind of paper, and the paper was flagged by 
the um, White House and there was a message, this is in Peter Duisburg's book, a message came from the White House to the NIH, I believe it was somewhere in the in the sort of press office there. Like, why didn't we flag this paper? So alarm bells start to go off around Peter Duisburg around 19, right there in 1987 is when essentially by writing that paper, as Harvey Bialy said, he sealed his scientific fate in America. That was it wasn't the end of Peter Duisburg, but it was the end of Peter Duisburg as a member of the club, the apparatus, as a scientist who could expect to have one peaceful day or a dollar of federal research funding. It was the end of him that way. And so that story is documented in chapter one of my book in great detail. What Anthony Fauci's apparatus did over many, many years to it wasn't Fauci alone. It's it's Fauci and and uh, you know all his minions, because they all played the game. They're all conditioned to go after Duisburg, to attack him in public. All kinds of the, the things that went on are just incredible. And uh, he was there because he had such a sort of white knight reputation, a stellar reputation. Um, he was a, he was a big problem for them. So they devoted. I don't know how many millions or how many years to a a besmirching campaign targeting him. And this is the saddest, most depressing and most effective thing that they do is the, the rendering an outstanding person into a pariah. Now look what they have and done in the past. And that, sorry, I, I don't mean to, to interject, but they have done exactly the same character assassination for the past two to three years. Look at all these doctors, frontline doctors talking about COVID-19 from the beginning. And all of a sudden, a lot of the information they were sharing at the beginning, they're saying, well, I guess they were right after all. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, Dr. Zelenko, who passed away, all these people who are trying to save lives. And now all of a sudden they're backtracking. It's too late now. But the same thing happened in the 80s. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, so what I saw to what I watched unfold when those, those are very similar archetypes a Peter McCullough and a Peter Duisburg, a Peter, you know, they're, they're um, stellar and unassailable. Nothing has ever come into question before. And then the, this, this beast machine kicks into high gear now, with McCullough, they did not manage to, I mean, they cut, I'm trying to remember what happened to him exactly. They have different, sort of different weaponry for different people. Some people merely got thrown off Twitter. Some people had their licenses yanked. All, all the stuff went on. So with COVID, it was the MDs were the fighting dissident heroes. With AIDS, it was more uh scientists but doctors as well but covid was really you know frontline doctors that's who was on the firing line and i was very uh heartened to see how many mds before my very eyes turned into you know i want to say turned into peter Duisburg's, right they were all over the place these sacrificing heroic doctors who just said what they had to say and took whatever blows they had to take. But I think prior to this this moment in history, they had no idea that there was this totalitarian system lying in wait, which we knew and we could have told them, but we were so drummed out of history that nobody knew we ever existed pretty much. Well, that's the thing. To you, it must be a lot of... uh... I don't want to say nostalgia because of all that research that you did, but a lot of deja vu happening all over again. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And uh, naturally a lot of mixed, mixed feelings about that. But one thing that made it somewhat easier for me to deal with COVID, write about it was that I, I, I wasn't alone or, or with a handful of people who are just being blasted and blown up and attacked and demonized. Um, I was just 
one of a very large pack of fish going through the ocean. There were so many people, there were so many voices. So it was an unusual experience to feel like, wow, the whole, the world gets it now because people got it very quickly. I they people understood because they saw it, they lived it. They saw the cruelty, they, the, the barbarism pretending to be public health. They saw the meaninglessness of the, the diagnostic test, the PCR test. They saw the brutality of the official treatments. They saw, they saw medical murder. Um, so people were disabused very quickly of whatever notions they may have had before 2020. And I was very impressed because back in the day, people were loath to be disabused of any of it, right? So we were just like a small struggling. Um, yeah, we were like we were like a uh, persecuted and a persecuted minority around the world, and all they had to say was AIDS denier, AIDS denialist, and you were you know canceled, disinvited, finished everything. That was the only thing that was needed it was a remarkable weaponization that they did with just just how they named us so you knew about cancel culture wokeism and censorship before they became trendy yes yes i yes i did and <laughs> yeah and i um my my hatred for all of it has not dimmed um woke i said this to robert f kennedy jr and he it's a very long quote in his book. And I feel I said this recently on my Substack that maybe this is the most important observation I've had, at least about Fauci. Um, and as I was forming this thought about Fauci and woke, I, uh, well, I guess I realized I, as I said to you early, I hadn't thought much about Fauci other than that he was the, the hidden hand, the silent punishing father, but nobody knew him. Nobody talked to him. Nobody, his fingerprints weren't on anything. Right. So it came to me suddenly, oh, now I know why he was so, so dangerous and so much more dangerous even than, than Bob Gallo. Cause Gallo, I think was a, let's call him for now, a, a, a useful idiot, if you know what I mean by the term, but not quite. He was like a partly a Manchurian candidate who was going to carry this thing out and then be taken off the field, but rewarded with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Okay. So back to Fauci um, and the, the observation and woke, I suddenly realized, all right, that's what he did. He brought woke into American science. He brought it in. I sort of imagined it like a Rasputin type of moment where he comes in the palace or, you know, he's got like he's sort of an alchemist and he has a potion and he's so he transfers the language of science, classical language into the into the language of of woke through the phenomenon of AIDS and the cultural hysteria of AIDS and the moral panic of AIDS and the moral panic of AIDS wasn't just we're, everyone's going to die, which is what they said. The moral panic was you must not speak inappropriately about homosexuals. You must not say the wrong thing or think the wrong thing. That was very central to it. And actually, nobody had any such designs. Nobody was trying to say anything against homosexuals, but people were trying to get to the bottom of why were they getting so sick? What was going on? And that involved by necessity talking about what at the time was called lifestyle. And that was a huge no-no because if you talked about lifestyle, you were homophobic. And I, I always say, and I'll say it now, I think the real homophobia would was in just invoking woke sloganeering pretending you love gay men by pretending everyone's going to get this disease that's not love that's not trying to help anybody or get to the bottom of anything that's what i hate about woke is it it pretends to be concern care love virtue and it it it, it deflects away from all it makes all of that impossible 
because it makes language impossible. It breaks down all, all connections, all connective, connective, um, all connecting roads between language and meaning. And so he was expert, Fauci, at breaking down the relationship between language and meaning and painting over everything, this kind of woke language that wasn't called woke at the time and political correctness didn't even really exist at the time. But if you go back to all his early, you can, you can see it there where he's always sort of saying things that aren't scientific or epidemiological, but they're coming from a, a sensibility and ideology, a uh, an agenda. And it seemed very absolutely shocking and freaky to the real scientists at the time. What is he talking about? What is he talking? What is Gallo talking about? So I can, whether I'm right or wrong, but I, I, my thesis about all this is that Gallo doesn't have, didn't really have a politically correct bone in his body, but Fauci was a master of woke, if that makes sense. And then the woke road to hell paved with woke intentions mm, yeah led straight to 2020 COVID and where we are now. Do you think that he perfected his craft as a spin doctor throughout the 80s and 90s? And this is why we saw this explosion and Fauci being the hero of the world? Yeah, Fauci the hero and the cult of Fauci was was built during AIDS by and with and through the AIDS activists, ACT UP, uh, star, star activists, who I suppose I don't need to name right now, but there was a an elite club of AIDS activists who uh, bonded with and became inseparable from Anthony Fauci, and they once the the initial sort of fake war was over, and the initial fake war was that Fauci wasn't approving AIDS drugs fast enough because he was a stodgy bureaucrat, and that the AIDS activists, uh, through their protests, um, you know, gave him his awakening that they're dying, and we have to give them. All of these myths, right? What they feed directly into. If you if you just take a step back, it's like, wow, what a perfect, what a perfect scenario, uh, dream for the pharmaceutical industry and all the powers that be. That now suddenly it's homophobic and cruel to test a drug for safety or efficacy. So, the fake fight between the activists and Fauci in the beginning, I call it a fake fight, was that. He was like, daddy, um, daddy doesn't get it. Stodgy daddy won't give us our drugs fast enough. And then there was a detente between Fauci and Larry Kramer, founder of ACT UP, founder also of GMHC, very famous activist. Uh, and the detente was, I suppose, that uh, Fauci was going to understand that what a priority, to make AIDS a huge priority and he made he he talk about obsessed he was so obs so obsessed he he made aids he made it more important than every other disease combined both in terms of funding you know rhetoric attention everything it just got everything like um like a, a very very special disease i don't have the numbers but i remember when i did have the numbers prior to my harper's article and i looked at Holy cow, the money that um, was allotted for AIDS research compared to other diseases like heart disease or even like cancer, absolutely no comparison. It's just off the charts funding. So there's still to this day something about the whole AIDS thing that none of us understand yet. <laughs> not even I. It's it was it was not a disease. It was something to do with. I'm just I'm just going to say the 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 formation of the new economic world order. I never using, forget. Oh, I'm using, sorry. F finish you your statement. No, I'm sorry. No, I, I, sometimes it just takes a while for me to figure out what I'm trying to say. I, and the new economic world order, but but weaving, I call them debt-based fake viruses into it. So a debt, it, putting people in debt to a disease. You test positive today. Bob Gallo first says you're going to die in a year. Then he says it might be five years. 
Gallo and Fauci as a tag team, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Well, we don't really know, but but you have to be afraid and hypervigilant and constantly running to us for surrogate marker testing and viral load testing and whatever other tests we come up with. And if you get the first symptom or even before you go on a cocktail of drugs and we're going to switch around your, you know, it's just infinite, infinite, infinite um, money. Profit. Sorry. Profit is the word, not money. Profit. Yeah. Infinite. Like you cannot imagine what they did and how they did it and how fast they did it. I think there are at least 70 drugs that are FDA approved, which came to mean as little as two weeks that the FDA looked at it in rats or whatever, HIV drugs I'm talking about. So it was like this orgiastic explosion of, yeah, we have a, I'll call it a a spectral virus, meaning as a specter, as a ghost. Uh, And we got a scare campaign and we have a ton of money, a couple trillion to work with. And this is the formula. This is the formula. And they could they they succeeded because even though their HIV did not manage to do any of the things they promised the people it was going to do, they terrorized the people it was going to do, people like you and I and hundreds of millions of others, people around the world believed that, you know, most people were going to die from it. Africa was going to be wiped off the map. You remember, right? Or maybe, I don't know if you remember the real apocalyptic scare. We're going to discuss the Africa, the out of Africa part and all that. But I remember 20, 30 years ago when they were talking about, for example, South Africa, they were saying they expected 50% of the population to fall ill into HIV AIDS and the young population would have to support all those people, and it was chaotic everywhere. I remember that. That's right. All BS. Um, so they, what I was about, yeah, right. Okay, so here, here's what's psychologically baffling. They they got everything wrong about AIDS, and yet the public just kind of went, huh, okay, and moved on and let gave them a big pass public did not say, wait a damn minute, you told me this, 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 and none of this happened. I'm not going to believe you next time. Somehow that did not happen. So the public was not, <laughs> not immunized against the next virus terror, fake virus terror to come, namely COVID, you know, and they had smaller ones, SARS and MERS and bird flu. And, and I was so reassured by the fact that none of those flew. I I knew they were trying to have the next AIDS, but what I saw was a bunch of duds over the intervening years. So I was sort of relaxed, like, okay. And then there it was, you know, boom. And I kind of saw it coming in from the uh, psyopery from China. And I knew right away and every single nerve in my, you know, my, my, like, amygdala. I was so, I knew right away this, and I called David Rasnick. uh, um, I guess your listeners may not know who David Rasnick is, but a fellow, fellow early HIV dissident and an incredible scientist who worked very closely with Peter Duisburg. And he said, see, it's a pneumonia in China. It's a, they can't turn that. In other words, he was, even he was still operating in the, well, that makes no sense. That can't fly. Right. And I said, yeah, but David, when do we read on the front pages of our newspapers about pneumonias that are getting in China? When does that happen? There's a huge reason behind this. It's coming. I just felt it. You know, in other words, gigantic psyop. I wanted to ask you that when this whole thing started happening, December, January, all, all the way till March. And I, I, I think that life changed after March of 2020. It's never been yeah. the same. It never will be the same. I hope not. But people like you who were in the front lines in the 80s and saw this coming, were you realizing, oh my goodness, here we go again. And will they believe me if I speak out again? We were. We were saying that to each other 
we got on some phone calls and we um we were extremely anxious um david crow who was then the president of uh, organization that was before covid called rethinking aids and now it has had to work covid into its name but this is the core group that has kept track of, you know, has been on the, the I, I guess it's the core um, academic and scientific group that still remains as the historic opposition. So that, that group, um, what people were, no, but there were, there was no mistaking that it was happening again. And I think we were paralyzed. Um, paralyzed in the sense of yeah you're you're exactly right will people listen because you see the hiv dis- dissent issue was quite esoteric as these things go right so to have ex- to expect people to have read this or that deconstruction of why the why the tests i i just had finally i had a, i realized what i i have to do something here i have to do something and my my father was was dying at the time and uh he was not he he was 90 years old when he passed but you know i knew he was this was his these were his last weeks and months and weeks so i was very preoccupied but one evening i realized i've got to go and find what carrie mollis inventor of pcr said to me decades ago in my articles about why PCR is a completely inappropriate, let me, he would never use that word and I don't want to use that word. Why PCR is totally exploited and misused was with HIV. They used PCR as part as viral load testing to try to prove that Peter Duisburg was wrong by showing these it's like Lynn Lynn Margul Lynn Margulis used to call it numerology. So you get these numbers, these numbers, right? Uh, HIV viral load testing was became a phenomenon after HIV testing. So that was the first scare. Then these guys were going off and getting HIV viral load testing, which was PCR based, and figuring out exactly where their so-called viral load wa- was, meaning how much they could expect to get sick and die or not expect to get sick and die to put it very simply um huge huge sub industries all these these are just enormous biotech sub and sub exploits of the original one which is what gallo has a patent on from day one the first hiv test okay so i realized got to go back and get carrie bring him back he had passed away he died as we know in in 2019 by the way, let me just interject. I apologize, but I'm so no glad problem. you're talking about Mullis here because I wonder what would have happened if Mullis had survived and, and, and spent uh, you know a few years longer with us and not died just a few months before COVID started. Obviously, he said that the PCR tests were not designed to diagnose. They were faulty. He knew it. And it was still, I mean, look, everybody knows what a PCR test, and they're still using it today in some places. What would have happened if Mullis had been alive when COVID happened, if he had spoken out about it? I'll say very simply, naturally, he would have he would have gone berserk. He would have screamed bloody murder. He would be horrified that his on every from every mountaintop he could he would have been screaming bloody murder. This test is not it. And, he, and we, you know, we have the recordings and they've blessedly turned up all over the Internet. It's a needle in a haystack technology. It can you sort of set it to it can find any molecule. It can't tell you. And I loved how simply he spoke. It can't tell you you, whether you're going to get sick, whether you're going to, it's, it doesn't. So infection, and this is one thing Dave Rasnick is very clear about. And, and, and so was Peter Duisburg always in, in the classical world, in the old world, if you're infected with a pathogen that, that, that is creating an infection in your body, it's all through your body. It's all, it's all over. You don't need this needle in the haystack PCR to go for PCR is, is, it's, it's a um I see what happened here, and it's really incredibly stunning that a very good person, Carrie Mullis, 
got this, it sort of, you know, it fell into his brain when he was driving the formula for PCR. And he, he wound up inventing this technology that wound up enslaving the world after he had died. I mean, it's really extraordinary. So on the one hand, yes, he would be screaming bloody murder. Part of me was glad he wasn't here to see this. In one interview I did with, he was an emotional person. In one interview with I did with him, he broke down crying over how they were even then using PCR to try to destroy Peter Duisburg, who he agreed with and was close friends with and supported and loved. So he was hating what they were doing already then with PCR, using it to, to uh, demonic ends. The only, the only thing I'll say as a caveat is that Carrie Mullis had stopped addressing HIV several years before his death, be, having nothing to do with, oh, I've made it now, I've got my Nobel Prize, none of that. It's just that he was so exhausted, apoplectic, fed up with it. He said, I've said what I have to say, because it's designed that way. It's endless loops, endless, endless, endless. You never get out of it. <laughs> and uh, so he had said, I'm not addressing this anymore. And um, to some extent, his 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 wife, Nancy, sought to protect him, sought to protect him, not just because the dark evil powers that be would come after him and try to ruin his reputation. You know, they did all of that, but it was hard to do that with, with Carrie Mullis after he invented PCR and after they had to give him the Nobel Prize, even though he was an HIV denier. Now, um, so Carrie, I could see him being conflicted only in terms of, again, you know, no doubt he would have found the nearest mountain, gotten unscreened bloody murder. But but he himself, as as a person over, you know, he he reached a point, as did many, as did the strongest, brightest and best, where it's like you just you can't address this demonic morass because it's not science at all. There's it's not science. It's made of something else. Um, but in this, in a dream scenario where Carrie was alive and somebody with a huge channel had done an interview with him, you know, I'll say this, even though he wasn't here, his voice was so strong and loud and clear when he was here. I mean, even though he wasn't here anymore in 2020, that, you know, we all brought him back. I, I was part of bringing him back. And then Gary Null had this incredible recorded interview with him and clips of that have gone viral um, clips of uh, a forum he did with Christine Majori at Heal in Los Angeles. So, so Carrie's voice was with us. I don't feel as some people do, you know, if only Carrie had been here, we, we would have been saved from all of this because again, through what he said then that echoed over the years into the future, he, he was with us and he is with us. Well, back then, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the big tech tyranny. So many weapons that are used against people now. And I think they used the Nobel Prize winner just to say, look, the PCR test came from a Nobel Prize winner. So this must work. And look at the way it was used. Billions of dollars. Test everywhere. The travel industry, government, everybody make money doing that. But let me go back to... Uh, Peter Duisberg for a second. What exactly did he discover when it comes to the what causes AIDS and also cancer? Yeah, great question. Huge question. Uh, so Peter Duisberg came along in was it was as I said an esteemed, decorated, stellar from Max Planck Institute, now doing science at UC Berkeley and a professor at. Um, and he is, he writes a, a um, he opposes HIV theory in a paper, which is also opposing retroviruses as causes of cancer theory, right? So he's giving them trouble on the cancer front. He's given uh, uh, genetic causes of cancer, oncogenes, and he's giving, giving them an indication of trouble about AIDS. That's actually the last part of the paper. So he becomes... The reason we know his name is not because of 
the actual science that he should be known for, which Harvey Bialy spent the last part of his life making absolutely sure that was documented in the scientific academic record who said who Peter Duisburg was as a scientist. He's still with us, thank God. So I don't mean to put him in past tense, but who he was in this era of, of, of cancer genetics. That was what Harvey Bialy set out to do. The world thinks that Peter Duisburg was some kind of AIDS. He was obsessed about AIDS. He wasn't. They were obsessed about him once he put this paper out that that rattled their empire, their money empire, and so they were obsessed with attacking and destroying him and and defunding him so he could no longer do what he really wanted to do and which was cancer science strictly speaking he was a he was a he's a cancer scientist right now he's recovering from a stroke he's not in the lab which is hard for me to even imagine peter not in the lab so we all need to pray for him he is from all i've heard recovering but it's slow he had a stroke in uh it was either 2020 or 2021 so you asked what what did he do what is he known for so he and this is a very interesting thing actually some scientists are known for what they invented like carrie mullis and some scientists are known for what they cleared away in terms of scientific detritus, what they did not go along with, countered and disproved. So Peter Duisburg is more of, of the latter. So he, the, the article that I did in Harper's in 2006 began as a pitch to Har- where I said, I'd like to tell the story. And this was all from knowing Harvey Bialy, who put all this into his book, which is called Oncogenes, Aneuploidy, and AIDS, The Scientific Life and Times of Peter H. Duisburg. So here's the drama. The scientist who got tarred and feathered and blown up for saying HIV did not cause AIDS comes along, having survived all that with no funding, but he's still managing with some private funding to do science as he needs to do it and do his experiments. And he comes up with a challenge to the reigning genetic paradigm of cancer at the time. And he comes up with a challenger theory. And the challenger theory is called the aneuploidy theory. And it moves the focus of cancer genetics from the, from the essentially from the gene to the chromosome. Nobody was looking at chromosomes since this uh, also German Theodore Boveri um, had formulated a chromosomal theory of cancer and Peter, and Peter saw, you know, he said, I hit the library and I read everything. And he saw that that had been dropped. The chromosomal theory of cancer had been dropped. And the, essentially the theory is that all, all cancers, the aneuploidy theory is that all cancers are characterized by abnormal chromosome presence or divis- division that they're chromosomally abnormal. Nobody was interested in chromosomes because as I think it was Peter who told me this, it was again, a kind of the fashions of the time, but because the, everything was the gene, the gene, the gene, the gene, nothing was the chromosome because it was, it was some, it was, it was uh, simple and big, much bigger. Your anybody's kind of granny could look through a microscope and see it. So it just wasn't considered the avant-garde, the thing to do. It wasn't um, in keeping with the spirit of, of, of like the advancing technologies, you know, like the way everything now has to be nano, right? So it's like these kind of strange values that creep into science and that everybody gets affected by. So Peter being a classical scientist, he looks for the dropped piece of the, of the history and the story. And he picks it up and he starts doing experiments and he's by all accounts, an outstanding experimental bench scientist who again was all, but all, but drummed out of having any chance to do any science anywhere because of the wrath of Tony Fauci. Uh, Nevertheless, he persists and what happens next 
when I started writing my article in 2003, 2004, my question, and as I posed it to the magazine's editor, Louis Lapham, was what if he came up with, let's call it the answer to cancer, at least as far as this stuff goes, right? Cancer genetics versus all of, uh, if he had the answer to cancer and the cancer industry, which had just wasted 30 years or languished for 30 years in the what was called the mutant gene theory of cancer. It just led to nothing. Um, and they knew it was bankrupt and they needed a new theory. So what if they wanted Peter Peter's theory? And my thinking at the time was, well, this is like a Shakespearean drama. Are they going to resurrect him and bring him back and forgive him? You know, they even used to do that in Stalin used to do that, but not Fauci. So could Peter Duisburg be forgiven for his sin, in quotes, of challenging HIV and also and, and be right about aneuploidy theory in the cancer field if he was right about aneuploidy theory in the cancer field? So that was my I thought that was just a fascinating play and uh, said about getting that story. And at, when all was said and done, what I. I should have imagined, but I didn't, was that there was a third, I thought the possibilities were, no, they sink him to the bottom of the sea, even if the truth about cancer goes with him, because the AIDS guys are so, that's all they understand is vendetta. Or the cancer guys say, give him back to us. We're running with this. We don't care how mad you are at him about HIV. So those were my sort of two scenarios. The third one was that they would, which is what they did, steal it out from under him, aneuploidy theory, recognizing that it was, I don't want to say the truth, but very fruitful. Dave Rasnick tells me this is the new, essentially the new paradigm in cancer is aneuploidy theory. So he, they wanted it. And what they did was they just took it out from under Duisburg, crumb by crumb, like ants at a picnic. They would just not cite him, which is vile it's like obscene in science that's what they did so they have run with the aneuploidy theory of cancer and they've deducebergged it speaking of contrast i'm just thinking of the contrast uh, but sweden i'm looking here at sweden in case people wonder because we saw that in the past couple of years that sweden was the one of the only countries if not the only country that decided no lockdowns we're just going to just deal with it like a normal flu well Back in the 80s, Sweden is the, was the only country with a law allowing compulsory isolation for HIV-infected people. And the Swedish press's approach to AIDS was terror-oriented. What a contrast, the way they dealt with it now. Do you think they dealt with COVID differently because of the, the, what they saw back in the 80s? Well, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I I told you I grew up in Sweden and I'm half Swedish and I'm I'm uh, fascinated by Anders Tegnell and what he did, and I'm I'm fascinated and and saddened to see that he. So I keep searching on the internet. As far as I can tell, he's he he doesn't have a job at the moment. He did leave. His post. I'm, in other words, I'm I'm arguing he should be a national hero in Sweden. Um, I was actually speaking about this with Ivor Cummins on his show the other day, and he's a fellow. We just both had the same feeling about Anders Tegnell, but he was right. He should be a national hero. Sweden needs to make a big deal out of this. Sweden alone, Tegnell and what he did, and Sweden alone disproves the entire COVID pack of lies. Yeah. Don't need anything else. You don't need anything else. And he agreed with me like, yeah, it can't really work out. What have they done with him? And where is he? And why Why has this one just kind of gotten away from us all? Because it's it's crystalline. Anders Tegnell steered Sweden, you know, between the rocks in a completely different way. He, he again, I'm going to use the word classical. I listened to those press conferences, not every single one, but the uh, uh, the state public health bureaucracy that he worked for, that he headed up, had press con- COVID press. Honestly, I can't remember if their COVID press conferences were daily or every other day, but they were. They they were so 
meticulous, methodical. I mean, it was like as interesting as listening to paint dry, but <laughs> in Swedish, but I was just listening for how are they talking to each other? What's he saying to the journalists? And it was all very respectful. And what was fascinating was every single time, and he said it over and over and over and over every day, he said, stay home if you're symptomatic, right? Don't visit your grandmother if you're symptomatic. So his whole way of, and and he got his, well, his his, uh, mentor is is Johan Giesecke, was another somewhat mysterious figure from the WHO. But those two guys, you know, when they put their heads together, for them, this was not an airborne disease that spread asymptomatically. Oh, good Lord. That was the whole rub right there that they took it off symptomology. So now the entire world, all the air in it, all the people in it, every surface in this world, every surface between people in this world, potential vectors of what they call transmission, but not for Anders Tegnell. I'm calling him a hero here, even though he got behind the vaccine, vaccines, I wish he hadn't, but an absolute hero. I can't imagine the pressure he was under and what he got, what Sweden got, I don't know if they know what they got. I don't think they do. No child missed school, was masked, terrorized. Businesses were not shut down. None of the terror that the terror and, and destruction and destruction of economy and suicides and missing school and all of it that has gone on. We've had children committing suicide, you know, in, in the yeah. United States and England. So none of this afflicted Sweden, thanks to Anders Tegnell. And yet I talked to Swedish friends and they don't have much to say about him one way or the other. They don't know or care where he is. So it's just it that fits with the Swedish a way of being that they don't get too excited. But I'm excited. You know, I think what he did is huge. I think he should get uh, he really needs to be he really needs to be. What's the word I'm looking for? I, don't I think, think he will be vindicated. Yeah, he, for me, yeah. he doesn't need glory. I don't think he wants glory. He doesn't want fame. He doesn't. Want, I, I I understand his personality, but something has to happen here because the the people who who ran this thing, terrorized, tyrannized, led mass murder, etc. If if we're if we're talking about people trying to say well. They had to. Sweden disproves that entirely. Would you agree? A hundred percent. I was saying that from the very beginning. I mean, I, I knew this was going to happen. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an expert. But I saw where we were going. And I said, the biggest, the innocent bystanders that we'll hear about in 20 years from now, all these children who are delayed in their cognition, in their development, uh, people that had to stay home with abusive parents, you name it, businesses that were okay. shut down, suicides that will happen in the future because of what happened now, this is going to last 100 years. At least, yep. It's it's incalculable damage and destruction and death. It's incalcul- transcalculational, let's call it. And then here's this man who's like a, God, and he came out of the the standard machine, Anders Tegnell, WHO and infectious disease and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing about his um, history that suggests that he would do this black swan thing. It should be a movie. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. We don't need a movie right now, but you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I get very passionate about it because I want to understand it. I want to understand, first of all, what made him do it? How did he know? What did? He, but what I saw from, from watching and listening in on Sweden throughout it was that he did have support. And he often said, this isn't just me. This is my whole team. And that's also a Swedish quality. They tend to be cooperative and non, they're not combative. They're not, you know, they're the cooperative people they're 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 quite sane uh so that has a lot to do with it as well he's i just wonder he's the anti-fauci well absolutely and i just think the the amount of power that who had 
and will have now, and you probably heard this, and I'd like to discuss that if we could when we come back. You know, the the agreement, the agreement that was signed last week by the Biden administration that gives pretty much all the sovereignty when it comes to the next pandemic to the WHO. Also, I'd like to discuss, because there's so many parallels uh, in your book. You might not know this, but there are so many. The, For example, AZT, the, the equivalent of today, in my opinion, the mRNA gene therapy, or even remdesivir, that's not been proven to be detrimental to anybody that uses it. We can talk about this when we come back. We have to take our one and only break. How can people buy the book, which is reinvigorated now with this latest pandemic, uh, Celia? How can people buy it? Is it out already? Uh, it's not out. I'm sorry. It's buyable, but it's not out. It's out on March 23rd. It's buyable both via the publisher, Chelsea Green. Go to their website, chelseagreen.com. Um, and it is also buyable on Amazon. If you just, if the, the title is a little long, but if you just put my name in, Celia Farber, there are actually two versions of it, but you'll see quickly which one it is to buy. It's a, it's a black book with red letters on it, and it's, it's due out on March 23rd. And it's already number one in its category, and its category is AIDS. So I don't know how many books are in that category, but that's how to buy it. And um, I will be uh, excerpting it and talking about it and so forth on uh, on my Substack, which shall I shall I give my Substack? Oh yes, now please, or... please, all your coordinates. And by the way, okay. we'll we'll wait. We'll recording this a few days before. We'll we'll coordinate to release this interview when the book is out. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so my Substack is celiafarber.substack.com c-e-l-i-a-f-a-r-b-e-r.substack.com and what's what's ha- what's happening there is a, so much of this is 12 pieces that i wrote over a, many many years of covering aids as an investigative long-form journalist so it's 12 of my pieces in this book that were written over the years but what's not in the book is the the under the floorboards, the underbelly, the th- I mean, unbelievable stuff that isn't in those pieces, but is in my is in my files and in my memories and so forth. And I'm finding that people really want to know that kind of stuff. It's uh, sometimes I refer to it as the, like the underbelly, if you will. So I'm going to be publishing uh, things from my archives, um, resurrecting a lot of many people were lied about, sometimes bullied actually to death um there's a lot that has to get set right and i'm going to do as much as i can at my Substack, which also covers a lot of other things as well so it's not just this wonderful one more hour to come with celia farber the title of the book is serious adverse events the uncensored history of age and i'll say the sequel COVID 19 this is mel hostelrick and you are listening to veritas don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.